I'm James Milley. And I'm Alex Mito. And this is The Artist Business Plan. Your favorite weekly business podcast for artist entrepreneurs hosted by Superfine Art Fair. Hello, business artists. You are listening to The Artist Business Plan, which means you are certifiably awesome. I'm James Milley, co-founder of Superfine Art Fair. We're the most widespread art fair for independent artists in the U.S. and one of the top resources for all things related to building your very own thriving art business. Today, we've got William Atkinson here with us. William is going to talk about his background as a street artist and the influence it had over his career. I'm very excited to hear what he has to say, but first, I've got an amazing offer here just for you ABP listeners. New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and yes, Miami. These are just a few of the places where you and your art can meet your next collector when you sign up and exhibit with us at Superfine Art Fair. Join the number one art fair for independent artists as we travel across the United States reaching thousands of qualified in-person art buyers at every single fair. And prepare yourself for success with a full suite of business resources like our very own podcast, which you're listening to right now. Superfine started with the connection between artists and an eager, empowered, qualified buying audience. So many alternatives didn't provide any real value for the artists who spent their precious time, hard-earned money, and major effort mounting and exhibiting their work without the results to back it up. And that meant it was time for something new. For seven years, Superfine has focused on breaking down these barriers and creating sustainable economic opportunities for artists to build careers from our fair. To find your place at a Superfine fair, simply visit www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. Don't miss the chance to be a part of the top business artist community in the world. And when you mention the artist business plan, you'll receive a $150 credit on your booth, no matter what size or city you choose. So that's $150 off. Just go online to www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art to set up your qualification call with James and get started selling your art with Superfine today. Again, that's www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. All right, so we are back here with William Atkinson. Contemporary artist William Atkinson has been creating art for over 10 years. Working in his early years as a street artist under a pseudonym, William sought to use his distinctive blend of abstract expressionism, street art, and graffiti assemblage to anonymously create public discourse. While his work naturally transitioned from street art to formal galleries, his art has remained loud and subversive keeping true to his initial form of expression. William does not revisit any of his pieces once the initial emotion is passed, ensuring he captures the energy of that single expressive moment. His work is created across multiple uh, media with a consistent tone and voice echoing his early artistic roots. After starting his work in the arts, Atkinson founded and operated a gallery and artist incubator in Los Angeles and later became operations director for two internationally renowned uh, galleries in New York. Today, Atkinson still believes that education is the key to success and weaves it into his daily practice. He works out of his studio based in Dallas, Texas, where he lives with his wife and child. Welcome to the Artist Business Plan, William. 
Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Such a wonderful introduction. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you can. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we should just we get it now. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's you're the one who's doing uh, all of that. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just uh, reading about all of your hard work. So <laughs> Uh, now, before we get started, William, uh, I just want to ask you something that I try to ask all of our guests when they come on to help our listeners get to know you. Uh, what is the earliest memory that you have of art? That's a great question. And I've, I've been kind of searching through my memories to really dive back there and, and find it. And the one that stands out the most for me is when young, young, I don't remember the exact age, but uh, one, of, one of the few vacations that we took as a family um, I believe we were in San Francisco, and my mom was insistent on taking to me these, to these gallery museum exhibitions. And there's this very special museum exhibition about Impressionist paintings. And she was telling me, like, this is important. Like, you've got to go see this, and we're, we're doing it. I was like, Sound, sounds great. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. No, I was just a little kid. And then, we, you know, to go through the process of buying the ticket and getting the map and going through the museum – um, and then finding the gallery where they were hung. And my mom was just like, this is really important. You got to take them. Like, why? Why? Like, why is this different? Why is this so special? And then after spending time with the, the paintings, um, I kind of was like, yeah, this is cool. This is special. I didn't know why. Um, but I knew there was something intrinsically different and interesting and special about that collection and that work. Um, and that and that resonated with me that, you know, even that a later reflection, not little kid reflection, you know, even if you don't understand or know why you're in the presence of something um, or something that's interesting or good, um, it can resonate with you. Um, so that that kind of stuck with me um, as a little one, not knowing it, and then in reflection as an adult later on. That's amazing. And it, it, that you you had this very early, very, very specific tie to your, uh, to your current work uh, that just, I guess, sounds like it incubated in you for a long time. That's, that's, uh, that's super cool that uh, not only did you just have an experience with art when you were young, but impressionist painting when you were young. Yeah. Um, nothing I, I, like, I do nothing with it. Like, I could never in, paint my way into an impressionist corner of a painting. I have no idea how to do that, um, but it stuck with me <laughs> somehow. Very cool. Very cool. Um, awesome. Well, let's go ahead and dive into the rest of the questions we have for you. Okay. So William, how did street art affect and influence the way that you work now? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And street art, um, I started in street art really <laughs> just because I, I didn't have any experience and it was wildly uncurated. <laughs> I could do whatever I wanted. Um, and I thought that was great. And I love that freedom of it and that just raw, natural expression. Um, for me, it really started in Los Angeles and I was able to have a conversation with the city. Um, granted, it was a one-way conversation <laughs> and it was me kind of yelling at the city, but you know, it was like a way to get that expression out there um, and way to share those ideas. Um, and very early on, I had someone who was in that world kind of, you know, grab me and pull me aside. He was like, hey, man, like if you're going to interrupt the conversation, like have something to say. And I was like, that's pretty poignant. Um, so that stuck with me. So I was like, if I'm going to interrupt this conversation or this, you know, social discourse or this um, visual environment um, for the public, I better have something to say. And, and it's okay if not everyone agrees with it, because once again, it is wildly uncurated and you have no real feedback loop. Like you don't know how things were received or responded to. And really at that time, I didn't care. It was a kind of like a one-way discussion. 
Um, there's also like materiality and like techniques and things you use um, in that in that practice that are kind of specific to that world. Like it was markers or wheat paste or types of paper or reappropriation of imagery. Um, and then there's the aspect of once you put something on the street, like you get one chance, like that, that's it. Like you don't go back and edit, like you can't go back. Oh, I really like to adjust the placement or refine this one little aspect of this piece. Like once it's out there, it's, it takes a life of its own, um, good or bad. It could last for a couple hours. It could last for a couple years. It could be collaborated with, uh, other people are going to interact with it in ways that they deem appropriate as well, or however they want to. So taking all of those experiences and then trying to transfer that to the fine art world, I was like, what, what can I keep from that? Um, one, not so much the yelling at the public. That's not a good idea. Um, more now it's an introspective uh, discussion that I'm having, sharing my thoughts and ideas. So that, that was a big shift of like looking inwardly instead of looking outwardly. But two of the things I can really keep are the materiality um, so some of the materials I use, whether it's, I'm not great with a spray can, that's not my medium, but like I try to use like spray paints, graffiti markers. Um, I use house paints, um, and then a reappropriation of imagery and a wheat pasting type, um, element to those pieces. And then one thing that I can really keep is the expressive moment, which is like, I do it all in one sitting. It's a couple hours and then that's it. I don't go back and edit. So I can try to keep that energy because like street art and graffiti have a, very specific energy that are um, with them. And part of that's the environment. So how do you recreate that um, in a, in a fine art piece? I think it's the, the creative energy behind it and that kind of like raw, unedited, unrefined, almost Abex style um, creative moment. And that's what I, that's what I try to do to stay true to my roots. Cause I know I, I got really lucky. Um, you know, it's not, I, I got lucky to transition to fine art. Um, so I do appreciate where I came from for sure. Yeah, no, I, that's such a good piece of advice. I would say for any artist, uh, even if they've never done street art before is, you know, I, I get this question a lot from artists where they ask, how do you know when something is done? And they just, they could be working on the same piece over and over again. And, uh, just not really knowing when to call it done. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I think as long as there's this you know, the idea is kind of being expressed all at once, even if that's say, let's, uh, let's say it's the the sketch that someone makes or something like that of, of their initial piece. And then that has that, uh, wildly uncurated, um, moment to it where it's just, you know, you, you're, you're getting the thought, your message out there. Uh, and then if, you know, it, depending on your medium, if it, if you then need to, take a bunch of time to, to put it together. Okay, cool. But you know, it's not, um, it's not this thing that's just being dragged out. So I, I think that that's, that's really cool that you've brought that, um, uh, that temporal nature of street art into your, um, you know, kind of more formal, um, uh, traditional art, uh, which yeah. I think is and, and that's just not my process. I'm not going to agonize over, uh, a line or a color. Um, when yeah. I'm working on a piece, I mean, it's, it's really like, how do I feel in that moment? Does this feel right? That's the metric I use. Like if it feels right, I, I do it. If not, I move on. Granted, like in the morning, sometimes I only like to work at night. That's kind of a leftover from street art. Um, I, sometimes I kind of send my wife in first. I'm like, how's it look? <laughs> you know, and then <laughs> do I need a creative title? You know, like, um, 
So, you know, it just, it's a very liberating way of saying like, you know, this, this is accurate. Um, this is an accurate, expressive moment. hundred percent. Um, so my next question for you takes a little bit of a, of a turn. So could you talk through the juxtaposition of being in law enforcement and being a street artist, uh, and how those two things impacted who you are today? Absolutely. And I think it's those two, those two things did not happen at the same time. So I think that's a little bit easier to understand that. Um, when I was much younger, my first professional job was a police officer. And then I had some other opportunities along the way, um, after that. And then I, I went into the, the art world, um, you know, full force. So the, I think the timing helps, um, one, uh, the law enforcement and then working in street art, it usually doesn't work the other way around. Um, it's not a good, a, a good way of doing it. Um, so it's a reconciliation really, um, of how ideas and ideas that can be seemingly disparate really can exist in the, in the same, in the same space. Um, it's like, well, you can't be this and you can't be that. Like, how is that possible to, to reconcile those, those concepts? They seem so, so different on their face. And but the reality is there's so many, and this is more like a life thing, you know, it's like, there's so many ways to reconcile different ideas and, 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 and concepts. Um, and when we look at them, we see that there's many more overlapping things that we may really understand at the, at the core base of it. Um, both law enforcement and, and street art are intended for the public sphere and intended for the betterment of the, of the public sphere. Um, and if you look at it holistically that way, I think it's a little bit easier to kind of like come to an understanding of how those may coexist. Obviously on the extreme ends of either side, it doesn't work. Um, but when you think about the intended nature of that and the overall impact in society, you start to understand, okay, so this is public sphere things. Um, this is how I do and how I can express that. Um, there's a raw emotional aspect to um, street art graffiti when done properly. Um, and it's one of those things where like, hey, there's no rules, but there's all these rules and there's no rules. And there's all these rules. Um, so you have to like, once again, reconcile a lot of things in your mind. So when you just kind of look back and say, like, as a life a life lived, like how can you juxtapose those things? I mean, it's really um, what overlaps and and what is the continuity of, of those two things that really makes sense. And that's for me what it is. It's like intended for public good, public space, um, enjoyment and betterment for the public. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that. <laughs> it was like a troll. You're like, yeah, buddy. <laughs> Not a chance. <laughs> no, 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 no. I actually agree with you that, you know, the far opposite ends of, of each role are they they probably don't have too much overlap if you're a street artist who's like you know breaking into you know areas to um you know to create your your work probably yeah. that's not that's probably going against some of your law enforcement um you know absolutely like morality <laughs> um but you know Kind of, kind of the, the the in between, right? Where it's you know, as a street artist who is you know doing things at least somewhat by the book, uh, you know, you're yeah, going to have that. Right, right. Right. And I yeah. never did, and I most certainly never did anything. I, mean, I never um, ever uh, had any uh, interactions as a law enforcement officer with someone executing street art graffiti. So, like, that would be a very hypocritical thing of me. And I never had that environment so um as you get older you reflect on things and you find yourself and like you you give yourself the grace and and latitude to change a little bit within confines of things that make sense um and uh, that's that was how i kind of reflected on that um to get to that space um granted like it's not something you advertise 
uh, when you go into the street art world. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm a former cop. <laughs> like, mm, that might be something you just kind of hold on to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, very cool. Okay, so we were talking before about your transition from street art into the world of galleries. So what were some of the difficulties that you encountered when making that transition? And why did you go there in the first place? Um, absolutely. And what, one, I was invited. Um, and so that was, that's a gift. Um, and this is at a time like, you know, street art ebbs and flows with popularity and, and location. Like, you know, at one point, like New York is everything. And then it's going to be LA is everything. And then oh, we're back to New York and it's only graffiti. And then wait, now it's wheat paste in LA and this is the height of it. Um, so it, it kind of like ebbs and flows as a little bit more in popularity than I would say other art forms. Um, and then also with like legitimacy in the gallery space and, and created in the, in the market, in the actual like economics of the art world, um, 2008, nine was showing like a kind of like increase of popularity, um, in LA street art specifically related to the street art blogs that were out there because there was now publicity and it was able to be less ephemeral and people could access it from all over the world and see it. So naturally galleries were like, man, we can, we can now capitalize on this. Um, so they invited a lot of street artists to start doing gallery shows. Um, I, I was really lucky that I, I got invited to some galleries that were actually very thoughtful as to, you know, how we're going to do this or so DIY, it didn't really matter. <laughs> it was like, we can just figure this out. Um, but for me, that process was like, how do you take the energy of an art form that was intended for external environments um, and viewing and to be a part of that fourth, like a fourth wall out there? Like the environment is like an incredibly important aspect of street art graffiti. Like how do you transfer that energy to their internal space? Um, and, and what I saw for a lot of people, it just it, it wasn't working. Like you can't take like, a, like a, a tag and just make it smaller and put it inside. Like you can't take a wheat paste. And then like just hand color it and frame it and put it in a gallery. Like that wasn't, that wasn't making the connection for me. It was not saying that's fine art. So I was like, what elements can I keep of my practice um, and still keep a consistent artistic voice um, and be interesting and refined and actually earn that space inside the gallery. And, and not everyone believed that once you go inside a gallery, that's an earned space. It is. I mean, there's a lot that goes into that wall. Um, so how do I earn that space? So for me at first, it was like, I'm going to only use found materials. That was like my first reconciliation. So I would scour, I lived in downtown LA. So I would like scour Skid Row. Like this is way before there was an Ace Hotel and like Hauser and Worth down there. They right. find like pallets and discarded wood and like pieces of plexiglass. I'm like, all right, this is what I'm going to use. It is from the street, literally. And I'll create on that. And then I'm going to keep my voice consistent. Um, so that, it definitely in the early days had a heavy um, edge to how I would put work on the street. Um, so you would definitely see the same type of imagery or language or um, voice in that. And then just refined execution in a way that was more elevated um, instead of just making something smaller and hand painted. Like it was just so hard to transfer that energy from exterior to interior. And then everyone had their own way of doing it. Some were successful and some weren't. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at your art, uh, you can really see exactly how you've brought this outside um, world of the street into uh, into the gallery space. Uh, so for anyone uh, listening along, I definitely recommend uh, checking out William.Atkinson, A-T-K 
I-N-S-O-N dot art on Instagram uh, as you're listening along for a little more context. Um, but we're going to... I've tried. Oh, sorry, like I'm, still, I'm experimenting <laughs> with it. Like, I am not an expert by any stretch. Um, there are definitely artists I look up to who've done it so well. I mean, I look up to Revoke and Parla, um, and, th- and those guys really transitioned um, expertly from the exterior space to that interior space and museum level work. I mean, so like I, I definitely have people I look up to and try to um, model after some of the successes they have and how they've done things. Hundred percent, yeah, and and I, I think that you're doing quite a fine job of it as well. So <laughs> don't don't sell yourself short. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're going to come right back uh, in just a moment. William's going to tell you a little more about galleries. We're going to dive into that a little more, and also the artist's voice. Uh, but first, uh, another message from our sponsors. Artists, not sure about the next move in your career? Whether you're a talented emerging artist or a nine to five career artist looking for an upgrade, Superfine Art Fair is the boost you've been waiting for. Showcasing top quality work with the highest level of production in the industry, Superfine has been continually developed over the past seven years to become the number one art fair for independent artists in the United States. If you want to make lifelong connections with collectors, if you're willing to learn new methods of marketing, and if you're able to make a plan and execute on it, then you're going to fit right in with our business artist community. From the east to the west, there are plenty of opportunities to expand your arts career with Superfine. To apply for a Superfine art fair near you, visit www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. Mention the artist business plan during your qualification call, and we'll take an additional $150 off of your booth fee for any city and any fair that you choose. We can't wait to welcome you to the Superfine community and start helping you sell more art today. All right. So, William, can you speak on how to maintain or initiate positive relationships with galleries? I know we talked about how you were invited into the gallery sphere um, but you know, how have you, how have you kept that relationship up in the meantime? Absolutely. And that's such an important, I mean, if you were going to be a professional artist and that's how you're going to make your living, um, like, like it or not, I mean, the gallery space is an integral part of that. Um, so you need to be able to navigate that in a way that makes sense for you. Um, and, and I have a way that's always worked for me and, and I have the benefit of being on both sides of that that discussion, um, having my own art gallery incubator space, working in New York galleries, um, and then being an artist as well. I've, I've had a lot of um, perspective and vantage points on that. Um, the first thing I always remind myself, one, is that conversation. If you're going to interrupt the, if you're gonna, that piece of advice, if you're going to interrupt the conversation, have something to say. So if you're going to do something for a gallery, there should be intention behind it. Um, and I'm not here to be the arbiter of what intention is. It could be like, hey, I liked blue on that day. Awesome. Great. Okay. Um, <laughs> give them some, give them something to work with and show that you have intention in your work. Um, and that was just my personal, when I was looking to work with an artist, like what what are we doing and why are you doing it? Because that helps build a connection. Like the gallery can then build a connection between your, your work and a potential viewer, collector, and say, this is some of the intentionality behind it. It's not the end all be all because a viewer is going to take what they want out of your piece, but at least gives like a, a initial discussion point. Then the second reminder I always give myself is that there are X number of galleries in the world. There are X number of walls in those galleries and there's 12 months a year. So if you take that number, like that's how many pieces of art or artists um, will be exhibited in that year. 
there are many more artists than there are um, that number we just calculated. So anytime a gallery gives me space, it's a huge honor. And, and I take it that way because they're taking a risk um, and, the, and they're really showing belief in your work. So I, I honor the gallery for, for um, selecting me and giving me space, which is a huge thing in the art world. And then I also take that honor very seriously because there's a lot of artists that would like to be there um, that aren't there. So at the end of the day, you got to remember that um, when you're like, ah, this is awful and they're brutal and they're hard to deal with and shipping, you know, it's like, hey, man, it's what you wanted. And there's a lot of people who would, who would really want to have that opportunity. So I think that's a good level set. The simplest thing I would advise is just be upfront and honest as to business dealings and your needs. Um, as an artist specifically, say that for an artist Pricey parity, I know it sounds silly, but like price parity across all aspects of how you do things is the easiest way to mitigate or eliminate hard conversations and not alienate galleries and buyers. Um, I know it's tough because galleries take percentages and sometimes there's a studio visit and I need to sell a piece. Like I, I get those dynamics, but at the end of the day, to be successful, um, you need to have a consistency of pricing. Um, that makes sense to collectors because that's the biggest fear that people have is like, how do you get this number? And like, why is it worth that? Um, so if people come to you and you say, nope, this is the, my collection of work, no matter where you buy it, this is the price. Um, I'd love to refer you to my gallery or we can do it here. Like depending on the contract you have with your gallery, whether it's an exclusive, they have your work, all of your work for a time period or just a show. Um, you say, man, this is it. And no matter how you do it, um, this is the price. And that makes everyone feel just a lot more at ease. And it also makes galleries feel a lot more at ease, especially if you're referring um, people to them that they should be handling the process for you. One, I don't like, I, I love handing, like, go handle it, gallery, please take this person. Um, so I think that's a, a wonderful way for me, even if it's a studio visit and as a, a body of work or a body of work that's similar, I'm always like, yeah, please allow me to refer you to my gallery. They handle those things for me and I'm happy to do it. I know that's not everyone's ideal, um, but that definitely builds a confidence um, and a relationship in, the, in an appropriate professional manner. Um, and then, you know, and then be professional. <laughs> like it's, I know it's so silly to say that, but it's like build a timeline. Like everything you do is a representation of you and your work. So it's like everything needs to be shipped properly, framed properly on time, you like photographed properly. Those are all details that matter. Um, when it comes to the world of aesthetics and professionalism and, and not everyone's great at that stuff. Um, but always do your best to have that and, and put that foot forward um, when it comes to the art world. There's some very valuable nuggets of information that you're, um, you're sharing here, but definitely uh, kind of going backwards, I guess uh, with being professional. I mean, you know, you don't want to end up being the, the 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 stereotype of an artist where it's like you're completely disorganized and you're making that gallery's job completely difficult uh that you know that's not going to help with the relationship and and also like you said i mean it is a relationship it's it's kind of the same as a uh, you know any other relationship that you have in your life you know there is uh trust and uh like you're mentioning about pricing uh that's something that that we see all the time just with uh you know, with, with the buyer to the, the artist as well, uh, when it doesn't feel like you can trust the price, um, or that it's going to stay the same, uh, it makes it a lot harder to even, you know, rationalize it 
having any price to it, you know, because it's exactly. And that's what, and if you're a professional artist, that's the definition of professional. It's like I receive money for this thing. It's like I'm not keeping my amateur status to compete in the Olympics here. It's like I am a professional to earn money, and that's how that's done. So like that is an important aspect of it. And I know people don't like to discuss that, but that is that's why it's there. So like we can all continue to make art and have a living and an existence. And there's a good way to do that. I think another like when it comes to that is also like a cogent, coherent um, pricing structure that does not have like jumps or weird like 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 I see artists all the time like, oh, their price jumped by a factor of 10 or they, you know, it's like, why? I mean, like, why? Like, have a cogent, coherent process um, of increasing your price in a way that makes sense, not only to collectors, but to the galleries as well. Um, and that makes, in the long run, that is such a better way of doing things. Because um, you'll get everyone there at the end of the day. Um, un- unless you have, like, a breakout thing or an auction record where it's substantiated by secondary market sales, um, then, yeah, then that makes sense. It's cogent and coherent. But to be like, oh, I got a, someone wrote an article about me. I need to add a zero like that. That's not going to um, do, do you a lot of good in the long run. Right. Yeah. And I mean, those those breakout auction sales, you know, if we're kind of going back to that, um, you know, the the, the calculation of, of how many gallery walls there are in the months of a year. I mean, that's an even smaller number. Yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. So, yeah. so, so the, the, the rules that apply to someone who is you know, having some outlandish sale at an auction probably don't apply to you unless unless you've had that breakout auction. And then, you know, good on at, you, man. At that point, like, I don't know why you're listening to a, a podcast. About exactly. You should not be listening just, to me. You're just you on vacation. You're making it work, not listening to me. I mean, like, yeah, right, right. right. <laughs> and, 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 um, you know, we could do a whole like the secondary market. We could do a whole podcast on that. I mean, that's a that's a whole other professional side of it but like i think you know the the coordinated and concerted effort um, with that gallery where it's like clear expectations up front and 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 you know look people they're people so you gotta remember like if they have a choice in to work with somebody like they want to work with someone who's consistent and reliable and you can be consistently bad that's fine but like consistent and reliable and they know what to expect versus like man, I have no idea what's going to happen when I try to um, work on this commission or complete this sale or get this shipment done. So just remember that. They're people too. And they're going to work with someone that they have a solid uh, relationship with. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, as much as it is about the quality of your art, you know, I've experienced it when speaking to artists where, you know, if you are difficult to work with because you can't, you know, you can't, yeah. uh, uh, provide a piece when they're expecting it, uh, or, or you are being kind of, uh, under, under the table with, with sales that go against your contract with that gallerist, they're not going to want to work with you. Even if you're, even if you have the m- most amazing art that they've ever, um, yeah. you know, shown it's, it, you have to be a, a good, uh, partner with them. Um, you know, the, the, the commodity I look for, like in the gallery is like, first of all, th- their word has to be impeccable. Okay. And that's what's a good gallery because at the end of the day, like someone's going to come to them and say like, why is this artist's piece good? And they're going to render an opinion. It's not fact. Okay. That's an opinion. Um, there, there are no hard facts of like, well, this is good because of this. No. So their word of impeccability being like, I do, I do what I say, I say what I do, 
as a gallery, like we do not monkey with pricing. We don't do odd things when it comes to money. Like, and we are consistently have an impeccable word. I mean, that is our standard for um, what is that, that threshold into the art world. That's what I look for. So I try to return that favor to them um, if they represent me in that way. Cause I don't, I don't want to work with someone who's not of that standard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, shifting gears a little bit. So, uh, you've, you've talked about the idea of the artist's voice, uh, previously. So what are some ways that an artist can keep their voice consistent? Yeah, that's a great question. And like, when I say consistent voice, I mean, it doesn't mean like you have to do the same thing over and over and over again, like a factory. And and I see people who do that because it's, it's very successful. And, and I see people who want to change and experiment and you should, you should always follow your creative instinct as an artist, hundred percent. The example I try to give, um, for some, some, a group of people who's kept their artistic voice, no matter what are the beastie boys. Okay. No matter what genre of music they are playing, punk, hip hop, rap, instrumental, jazz, it, it doesn't matter. You always know it's the Beastie Boys. Um, <laughs> there's, there's something there that is intrinsically them. Um, so I say find that about you. Like find what is intrinsically part of you or your creative process or um, the expression that you want to have in this world and keep that. Don't be afraid to experiment by any stretch of the imagination. You should. You need to. That's, that's why we're here. Um, but keep something that always is you. Um, as kind of that that marker that says, oh my gosh, yeah, that's his, his or her art. Like, yeah, obviously it gets so different and so interesting, but I can tell it's them. Um, I think that allows um, you, the artist, to have that creative freedom um, to explore as as needed and as you should. I think it also allows galleries to like have a few signposts of like, well, you can see this voice or consistency in the work, even though this is sculpture and they were doing printmaking before, like you can see that there is a connective fiber here. And then for um, collectors or, you know, viewers or whoever you're presenting your work to, like, um, I think that's also an interesting uh, discussion point in a way to kind of anchor their thoughts when it comes to your work, because people are just trying to understand why, like, why is the artist doing this? Like, why did they do that? Or um, how is that possible? Or what is their thought process? That So, that consistent voice across whatever you do and um, helps kind of anchor that conversation a little bit. And there's going to be a lot of disagreeing with that. And that's fine. <laughs> you know, like, and, and that's totally okay. Like I, be free, do what you want. Um, but for me, um, you know, finding that voice has allowed me to transition from um, street art to fine art to whatever type of, ex- to whatever type of expression I want to do after that. Um, and, and for me, I think, you know, no matter like the Beastie Boys, like I used to listen to them all the time in my cruiser. I was like, no matter what, I always had that anchor of like, ah, oh, it's, it's them. Like it's so ex- creative to like, how can you push the boundaries of creativity into a totally new genre, but still be true to you and that individual? Um, so that's what I mean by creative voice. No, no, I, I actually totally agree with you. I mean, there's this concern with artists, right, of you know, oh, if I change my style or if I change, uh, you know, what medium or, or, or my subject matter, um, am I going to completely lose my audience? And so that can be really restricting and confining and, and being confined that way uh, can completely destroy your your creativity and, and kind of having that 
uh, authenticity to your work, right? Because you're just, you're, you're making what works well for your audience, even if that's not what you feel like making right then. Um, so, so, you know, there's, there's artists I've speak, I've spoken with and they make multiple different bodies of work. And so, you know, when we're talking about if they're, um, you know, what they're planning to show in our art fair, uh, you know, they, they ask, is it okay to show photo, these photos that I have and also these paintings? And it, it comes down to, is there this curatorial consistency to it? Does it have a thread that is tying everything together? And a lot of the times it does, because even though it's completely different media, it's not, it's not like, um, you know, the photo version of the painting, you can tell it's coming from the same artist and from, from the same mind. Um, so I think that as, as long as you keep that true with the work, then, you know, that can be really liberating, like you're saying, where, you know, that gives you the freedom to, uh, explore more, to play more and, uh, and, and discover, uh, you know, something that you might not have thought of before because you're like, Oh no, I'm, I'm a photographer that I, you know, I, I can't make sculpture. I can't make paintings. Um, and yeah, no, I, I think, I think just keeping free as you make work, that's how you're going to be making the best work. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, William, this has been an amazing conversation. Let's go ahead and bring it home for our listeners. What is your number one tip for artists just getting started? Make work. <laughs> Every day make work. Exercise the muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and 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 man, like you're only as good as the the piece you're making. Like don't don't look back and be like, ah, I have this body of work that I can kind of rest on. No, no. Like keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. Um, and then don't forget the business side of it. Like you are, if you want to do this as a, a professional. Um, that there are things that come with that. Um, so do your best. Um, and not everyone's the same when it comes to that, but do your best when it comes to the professional side of it that will only enhance um, the creative aspect that you produce. Totally agree. You know, I when you're treating it like a business, some of these things just become uh, obvious. You know, as, as far as, you know, making new work, I mean, if you are uh, feeling guilty about focusing too much on the art side of it versus the business side, you don't have a product, <laughs> you know, fun, like, like using business terms, like you don't have a business because your business is your art. So if you're like, Oh my God, like I have to be like, you know, working on my website or marketing or whatever. I mean, those things, yes, those are important. You, you do need to, to take it seriously and do those things as well. But as far as making the art, if you don't make it, then you don't have anything that you're selling. So, um, a bit of a yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Then, then you just have a website. Um, yeah. so <laughs> both are important. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much everyone for listening. Uh, you can listen to this in all of our past podcasts on our website at www.superfine.world. Again, to connect with William, you can follow his Instagram page at William.com atkinson.art. Be sure to check us out on Superfine Art Fair uh, on Instagram. That's our username. Uh, we always appreciate a share when you're listening to and enjoying the artist business plan, especially if you're, you know, listening to it while you're in your studio or something, you know, have, have a, a photo of your art in the background, uh, you know, to show kind of where you are while you're listening to it. 
Um, also, uh, we always appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts um, when you get the chance. Uh, those ratings and reviews, that's how other artists find out about the podcast so they can improve their art careers as well. Uh, and as always, I'd like to wrap up uh, by sharing a quick quote with you all. Uh, today's quote is William S. Burroughs, the aim of education is the knowledge not of facts but of values. William, it has been such a pleasure having you here with us today. Thank you again for sharing your perspective with our listeners. We are so grateful for that. Thank you. It's been an honor. Absolutely. Uh, everyone else, have an awesome rest of your day. And remember to stay on top of your artist business plan, get out there, and make it happen. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Artist Business Plan. Hosted by me, Alex Mito. And me, James Milley. Join us each week to hear leaders in the art, marketing, and business arenas discuss tips and tricks designed to help you thrive and sell more art. To listen to this episode and all of our past episodes, just visit www.superfine.world and click the Artist Business Plan. And we love to hear what you have to say, so just follow us on Instagram at superfineartfair and shoot us a message just to let us know you're listening. Want to exhibit at an upcoming fair? Go to www.superfine.world slash sell hyphen your hyphen art. Until next time, keep listening, keep creating, and keep up your artist business plan.